thank you. It's good to see you all. Uh, George Muller, a famous uh, 19th century Christian uh, who set up lots of orphanages, ran them by faith. He recorded over 50,000 answers to prayer over his lifetime. But there was one guy who he'd been praying for for 63 years to come to salvation. And George had died, and this hadn't happened. Yet the story continues uh, that at the graveside, this guy that he'd been praying for for 63 years gave his life to Jesus Christ. Now, George has got a few things to say about prayer. And this is one of the things he says. The great point is never to give up until the answer comes. The great fault of the children of God is that they do not continue in prayer. They do not go on praying. They do not persevere. If they desire anything for God's glory, they should pray until they get it. Oh, how good, kind, gracious, and generous is the one with whom we have to do it. Jesus taught a little bit about prayer. Uh, In one area, it was in Luke chapter 11. He teaches us the Lord's Prayer. And he returns to that theme later in Luke's account. And we're going to look at it today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, look up Luke chapter 18. It will come up behind me, but I'm relatively tall. My ears are large, so you might not be able to see around me. So you might need a Bible in front of you as well. Heavenly Father, thank you that you keep revealing your love to us in so many ways. As we've been reminded this morning. And Father, I look to you again, we look to you again to reveal your love to us by showing us truth, by making it real to us, by allowing our hearts to connect with the Word of God in a way that opens them up to who you are, to the things of your Holy Spirit that we may live our lives for you in submission and discipleship in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 18, this is from verse 1. Uh, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time, he refused. But finally, he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this woman keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When it comes to these parables, 
of which we've got one example of here, it is quite easy sometimes to miss the main point. It's easy to overcomplicate the details. However, in this case, thanks to Luke, we're going to be okay. Because Luke, in his introduction, brings us the conclusion. So we can't go wrong. We can't get our knickers in a twist, if you like, over it. Uh, and he says this, look, Jesus told them a parable, his disciples, to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So what's this parable about? Always pray and not give up. Absolutely. We've got it. Fantastic. You've got it. Brilliant. We can go home. We've got the essence of the parable. Thank you, Luke, for that. Well, I'm going to endeavor to carry on anyway, if you bear with me and stick around. Uh, I just want to unpack the parable itself. Jesus gave. And then we got some extra comments from Jesus from verse 6 to 8, some of his explanation to it. And then he ends with a punchline, a challenge about looking for faith on earth before the Son of Man returns. That's the structure, if you like. But we must remember this is about praying, always praying and not giving up. Let's not depart from that simple yet profound message. There was a poster produced by the British government in 1939 at the outbreak of World War II, and it was this one, Keep Calm and Carry On, uh, really designed to raise morale in the event of an invasion. But they didn't use it very often, I'm told, uh, a few times during the war, but it's been used possibly much more in the last 20 years. Have you seen something like this, or at least the inspiration of it? Keep calm and carry on has appeared on T-shirts and on mugs and on memes everywhere uh, and various derivatives. Well, I'd like to suggest to you that if Luke had been aware of that type of propaganda message, he might have borrowed from it in bringing his summary about this parable, uh, maybe changing the word slightly to keep calm and pray on. Although I'd like to bring an even greater emphasis to prayer. Uh, I haven't got a picture for it. I didn't doctor it myself. I'm not that clever with uh, images on, on computers. But what about this one? Keep praying and pray on. I think that's the message of this parable. Keep praying and pray on. You see, as the disciples with Jesus were approaching Jerusalem for the last time, I think they were a little bit unsettled. They may have been even fearful for a number of reasons. They would have observed the growing opposition towards Jesus. They would have heard Jesus' predictions about the suffering he was going to endure. They just received, as we heard last week, some teaching about the kingdom of God that was on its way. And it didn't all sound great, some of the events surrounding it. I think they may, we may have excused them if they are feeling a little bit fearful. But Jesus' message, no, stay calm. Keep praying and pray on was really relevant. And I guess it may not be too dissimilar for us. There are things in our lives to unsettle us at the moment. There are things going on in our nation that may be unsettling us. I've gone away for a little bit, but you know, there are things in this world to be fearful of. And the Lord's message, I think, to us will be, no, no, keep calm, keep praying, and pray on. And that's what his followers were hearing. You see, if you missed the week of prayer last week, don't worry, because we're not really called for a week of prayer, although they're helpful, and we'll put them in going forward. We're not really called for a month of prayer, though they can be helpful, or even a year of prayer. 
God is saying, no, you're called to a life of prayer. Until I come, says Jesus. He ends this section of his parable with a reference to his second coming. This teaching on prayer comes straight after his teaching on the kingdom of God. And now we might not get our head around yet fully the fact that the kingdom of God has come and is still yet to come. The fact that the kingdom is now and not yet. But what we can get is this. That prayer is important. Now is the time to pray. And I think this parable can help us in a few ways. Because prayer is tricky at times. It's only a few years in to the few weeks into the new year. I don't know about you, but I sometimes have resolutions, commitments to yeah, pull myself up a bit, you know, spend a bit more effort on my spiritual disciplines, but only a few weeks in. I'm flagging. How are you doing? <laughs> Maybe you don't have those types of ambitions as at the turn of a year. Today is my date in the month for uh, committing to pray for healing for those on our 365 prayer initiative. I haven't got down to it yet. Well, I've had all morning so far. Uh, it, we can find it difficult, can't we, to keep going in the things of prayer. And I think this parable and the surrounding commentary helps us in a number of ways uh, by helping us know who we're praying to, help us to know why God listens to our prayers, and help us to know why sometimes we have to wait. And I could give you some prayer behaviors. I could share how I pray, and maybe that'll be helpful in the life group setting later this week, but I think I'd rather start with our faith. What are we believing about who God is, about what he's made us into, and about what's going on when we pray? And I think those things, they may be more head things, they may be heart things, they're not practical hands and feet things, will help us keep going in our prayer lives. Parables tend to have a character in them that represents God. And in this case, it's the judge. However, unlike most parables, we're not meant to compare the judge to God. We're meant to contrast the judge with God. God is not like the corrupt judge. He's the polar opposite of the judge in our story. He is our loving father, as we've heard already this morning. So if even a bad cold-hearted judge can eventually be persuaded to dispense justice, which this parable illustrates, then how much more will a good, kind-hearted father respond to our requests in prayer? And perhaps one of the reasons some of us struggle with keeping going in prayer, we've not quite got the right understanding of who God is. We might not be far wrong, but maybe we've not got a complete and rounded view of him as our loving father. We're still to grasp fully the implications of who he is as our father in heaven and allow that to permeate every corner of our understanding. And so perhaps being confronted with the opposite, with the extreme opposite, it will help iron out any misconceptions we might have about who it is we're praying to. Because being no doubt, the judge in Jesus' story is awful. He's bad, as some might describe. He's a bad man. He's not good at all. Not only is he clearly unjust, but there are a couple of accusations against him. Firstly, that he doesn't seem to fear God. You can't go to him and say, for God's sake, 
answer this lady's plea. He can't move him on the basis of his sense of right and wrong. His conscience is dead. And secondly, the accusation is he doesn't care what people think. You can't go to him and appeal. For pity's sake, man, respond to this lady's request. It's going to wash right over him. It will have no impact. In the Middle East, the culture then as now really in the Eastern world was very much more uh, honor-based. Maybe in contrast to our culture in the West, which is more guilt-based. And so, even in that context, it would have been a surprise that he, he wasn't prepared to act just out of respect for himself, out of honor for his family, for the community. He couldn't be shamed into the right kind of behavior. He was unmoved by that. Now, there are claims of miscarriages of justice going on, aren't there, at times? And they're heartbreaking. And you wonder, do we need the wisdom of Solomon, really, to solve them? As a 19-year-old as a coming back from Cyprus, who's, who's been told that she's, well, been sentenced for mischief, for lying in court, and she's now back here, a suspended sentence, saying, no, this is not true. There's a miscarriage of justice. And if that's true... Wow, it needs to be solved. It's a horrific case. There was another one where uh, a Japanese chief executive of Nissan has ended up uh, popping out of a musical instrument case in the Lebanon, having escaped the Japanese justice system, where he's claiming, it's not fair. It's rigged against me. Now, I hope they get to the bottom of both of those cases, because if they're true, it's terrible. But in this parable, be in no doubt, there's a miscarriage of justice here. It's not working. The justice system is bent. The widow's cause implicitly is valid, but not only that, the judge admits. It's true. He says about himself later on in verse 4, I don't fear God. I don't care what people think. It's true. I'm, I'm without conscience. I'm without shame. So be in no doubt. This is, this is a bad example of justice not being done. Good example of it not being done. There's no appeal to him. Maybe bribery. Of course, in the story, you've got a widow, an archetype in biblical narrative of someone who's completely vulnerable, thrust upon the mercy of others, with no one to plead her case, with no resources to rely upon. She's on her own. She, she hasn't got the luxury of trying to persuade the judge with a, with a backhander. It's not going to happen. All she's got is a voice. God is the exact opposite of this judge. God is love. God is just. God, he is fair and he cares. That's our God. Do you know him? Do you need more revelation? We all need more revelation of the Father's love. Just as Jane received again and again, we need to see more revelation to understand how much, just how much he loves us. And he's nothing like this. Absolute opposite. But finally, the judge relents. Why? Well, he says, because this widow keeps bothering me. So she won't eventually come back and attack me, he explains. That's why I've given in. Uh, the word attack there is a boxing term, meaning really a blow to the head. And I don't think it's the case that uh, he was worried this woman was going to get physically violent with him. I think he was just admitting, she's given me a splitting headache and it's not letting up. Uh, a bit like... Under the cosh with Tyson Fury. I don't know if you know your boxing, but uh, last year Tyson Fury got off the canvas twice 
in one bout for the World Heavyweight Championship, even on the count of 10, was it 9.9, was it 10.0? I don't know. Anyway, he got up again and carried on, deemed conscious enough to carry on. The judge was feeling like, I've got Tyson Fury on my hands. And he's, metaphorically, it's a headache that I can't get rid of. She keeps popping up. Now, we may never imagine Maybe you don't imagine that God is like this harsh, heartless judge. But perhaps, perhaps we think, well, he's not, he's not like the judge, but maybe he's got some of these traits some of the time. Maybe we get the impression sometimes that God is preoccupied when we're praying to him. Maybe we get the impression sometimes God is disinterested in our prayer requests. Some, maybe we wonder whether God is sometimes reluctant to answer our prayers. Now, eventually, this widow gets away because she kept bothering the bloke. So maybe we conclude persistent prayer is necessary to get God's attention, to provoke his interest, to move him to action. But if we make that conclusion, I'll suggest to you we've made the wrong conclusion. Now, there is an acknowledgement in this parable that from our perspective... As a prayer, it can feel like we're the widow in the story. Just bringing, pummeling, incessantly, banging on with our prayer requests, our heartaches, our anguishes, the things that grip us, the things that despair us, the things that we want to see God break through on. Have you got prayers like that? I've got prayers like that. Desperate to see breakthrough. Prayed for them again and again and again wanting him to step in. So we can feel like the widow at times. But that doesn't mean that God is like the judge. We might be like the widow, and it might be right to keep going in prayer, but it's not because God is like the judge. You see, praying continuously and persistently is modeled throughout the Bible. It's part of the equation. It's part of what we're called to. Jesus prayed for three hours in the Garden of Gethsemane with blood, with sweat, with tears. When was the last time you prayed for three hours? It doesn't sound very long until you do it. Jesus was there three hours until God's mercy came, his comfort came, and he could go with confidence. Elijah prayed in one continuous prayer session seven times for rain. Hadn't rained for years. Lord, send the rain. And he sent his servant out. Any, any hint? No. Doesn't look like rain. Lord, I pray for rain again. Any? any? No. Seven times. Until, yes, there's a little cloud appearing on the horizon. And Elijah knew his prayer was answered. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, he prayed for three weeks on one thing. 21 days of fasting and praying until the Lord come. You see, persistent prayer is to be our experience at times. But it's not because God is like the judge. The widow's experience may be familiar, but God is all-loving and all-powerful and all-wise. And so the more revelation I think we get of who God is, the more motivated I believe we will be to pray. 
That's point one. Point two, knowing why our prayers are heard is really important. And as we understand why, on what basis our prayers are heard, I believe we'll be motivated to pray all the more. And we have to look now in Jesus' explanation, verse 6 to 8. So if you've got your Bibles, do open it there. Uh, It's proven to be really challenging to translate, so the commentators I've been reading have talked about. And I'm no expert in Greek vocab or grammar, although I've got somebody on the front row who's becoming one. And yet in my simple brain, I've understood this. that The theme here is about saving faith. It's about faith. Let's just look at that. Why do I think that? Firstly, faith is the challenge. I've already brought it out. The last line that Jesus says, the punchline for us to go away with, is the start, when the Son of Man re- returns, will he find faith on earth? Jesus has come once and he's going to come again. And why the wait? Why are we waiting for him to come again? Because he's looking for faith from people of every language and tribe and nation. He's wanting faith to come. He wants to see faith in us. He wants to f- see faith around the world. So it's about faith. Secondly, in that section, chapter, uh, verses 6 to 8, I think there are a number of references here to what we might refer to as justification by faith. That understanding that we're saved eternally. We're, we receive eternal life simply by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's how it is. Simple as that. We place our faith in Jesus, in his resurrection, and in his lordship over our lives. And then the Father pronounces us innocent. It talks about justice a couple of times in verses 6 and verse 8. Our ultimate justification, the ultimate pronouncement and declaration over our lives is innocent. Because we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. It's a term straight out of the law courts like this parable is. And it's over your life if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Then the middle sentence of the the cluster of five in this little passage, six to eight, I think is quite important. And I've been grappling with it as others before me have. The NIV version of the Bible, which I read out earlier, is at the top here. It says this, will he keep putting them off? But I've got a couple of other translations. These are from people who've tried to give us a more literal translation. And in some ways, they look a little bit different. So what's going on in there? One of them says, also, he's slow to anger over them. Talking about God. God is slow to anger over them. Another one is that he is patient with them. That God is patient with them. How can they look so different? Well, I'm told there is a word in the heart of this little phrase, which is translated Sometimes as patience. It's not the only word for patience in the Greek uh, vocabulary, but it's one of them. And it's that type of patience, like the slowness to anger we read about as God's characteristic, that diverts his judgment from us to Jesus at the cross. It's, it's that kind of patience where, he's, he's, where, where judgment and mercy have met in Jesus. And because we've placed our faith in Jesus... He can pronounce us innocent even though we've done wrong because our sin has been transferred to Jesus by faith and he carries our judgment at the cross. That's why God is slow to anger towards us because we have received that kind of mercy from him. You know, when it comes to prayer, have you ever thought, why does, why does God answer? Why would God answer our prayer? Why would he even listen to our prayers? 
I don't think we have any inherent right to expect God to listen to us in of, our, of ourselves. Even if we pray the correct prayer, that doesn't give God the right or our right for, to, to, to be heard. Even if we've prayed with tears, even if we've prayed consistently and persistently over the years, that doesn't mean we have any right for God to answer us. So what is the basis on which God listens to our prayers? It's on his grace, on his mercy that we have received by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's because we're standing in Jesus by faith that God has to listen to us. Because we are in him. Because we are praying, in that sense, in his name. It's not a, a hocus-pocus suffix to add on to the end of our prayers to give it a bit more weight. No, it's a spiritual reality. God's patient with us. He's removed our sins and placed them on Christ. And by putting our faith in Jesus, the declaration of righteousness and innocence that was over Jesus is now ours. God is going to listen to your prayers if you're in Jesus. God has to listen to your prayers if you're in Christ Jesus. And of course, we're going to look to pray in line with God's will. Of course, passion is important in prayer as we engage with the emotions and the empathy of our requests. Of course, persistence is going to be necessary at times. But the basis of God hearing and responding to our prayers is his mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. Why would we not pray? Luke makes this link, I think, as well in his introductory comment between faith and prayer. He said, always pray and never give up. Never lose heart. Never lose faith. You see, prayer is the fruit of faith. James said in his little letter later on in the Bible that faith without deeds is dead. Not because we're saved by doing things, but if it's genuine salvation, then it will work its way out in action. And I think the parable here we've got is saying something similar. Faith without prayer is dead. Not because we're saved by prayer, but because if genuine faith has come to us, then prayer will work its way out. It will be a product, naturally, of our life. It will be evidence of the faith in Jesus that we have. I don't know if you've driven up the M1 recently, maybe over the last year or so, and in around the Northamptonshire area, you may have spotted a big warehouse. It's an Amazon warehouse. It's huge, the size of a dozen football pitches. But you would be excused if you missed it because they've got a clever paintwork going on with shades of blue and shades of grey. It just blends in with the drab English sky of the Midlands. No disrespect to the Midlands. It's probably the same anywhere else. Uh, even though it's huge, it's, it goes largely unnoticed. Look out for it. The kingdom of God works a little bit like Amazon. God has this heavenly warehouse full of all the resources, all the answers to prayer for his kingdom and his will to be done on earth. Just as Amazon have got all the, the stuff that you might possibly ever want or need, probably want, sitting there waiting for the orders to be placed. So God has this heavenly storehouse waiting for our prayers to bring his will and his kingdom to earth. 
And not praying is, is like getting, getting an Amazon voucher for Christmas. And you never get round to using it before the date is up and it's invalid. We've got the rest of our lives or until Jesus returns. And we have that kind of voucher. That's how God's kingdom is going to come as we pray. And thirdly, I think something that might help us persist in prayer is knowing what we're waiting for or why we're waiting. We know that God answers prayers either with a yes or a no or a wait. And the yes we love, the no's are tricky, but sometimes we can at least appreciate a no because God knows best, even if we don't understand the perspective. But wait can be really hard. A wait prayer answer from God is tricky. Why do we need to persist like this widow in the story if God is our loving Father, if he's got this bounty for us, if he's promising speedy response? Well, if we're not trying to overcome God's reluctance or his hesitancy or his laziness, if we're not trying to twist his arm or bend his will because prayer doesn't do any of that, why, why the wait? Why, why the delay? What's achieved by our persistence in prayer? Just a few things from other parts of Scripture to encourage you before we finish. Firstly, God's timing. There's simply a fullness of time to God's plans that is beyond our understanding. That's the only explanation we get for why Jesus appeared 2,000 years ago. It's history to us, but for many millennia, it, 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 was, it, was, a, it was a longing. It was a prayer since Genesis 3.15 that they've been waiting for the Savior to come. So why, why did it take him so long? Well, Galatians 4 tells us when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. There's a set time. God's perfect timing. Why hasn't Jesus come again? He could have come so soon after the first one. Why has he waited another few millennia and maybe some more before coming again? Because he's, there's a set time, a perfect time for his answer to that prayer. We live in an instant culture. We must realize that even Amazon are aiming to deliver parcels within the day that they're ordered. That's their latest ambition. And we can find God's perfect timing really challenging and frustrating. But it's always been this way. And it always will, because God knows the right time. Secondly, God's testing. James 1 tells us that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. Perseverance has to finish its works so that we may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. You see, God is working on us. He's working on you. He's working on your character. He's working on what you're like. And he's got things to teach you. And waiting is his lesson. It's his classroom for impressing these things on you. I read about a plant called the century plant. It's a South American plant, uh, and it's called a century plant because it takes 10 years before it blooms. But it probably feels like 100. That's why it's called the century plant. Uh, but if you're prepared to wait and nurture it for 10 years, eventually these shoots will come up, eight foot tall, with a, with a shock of yellow dense flowers all over them. It doesn't look particularly impressive there, but you know, I'm sure in person it will look good in the garden. Maturity takes time. And God is interested in our maturity. And thirdly, God's working. He's behind the scenes as we pray. He's working in other people's hearts. He's working in earthly circumstances. And he's working in the spiritual realm. I referred to Daniel earlier. In Daniel 10, God did give him some explanation of why Daniel had to keep persevering in prayer for 21 days. We read this. 
but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. He's talking about spiritual princes and kings, demons and angels, and an unseen spiritual battle that is going on while Daniel was praying. And he's just given enough to encourage Daniel. Something's happening. It doesn't look like it on earth. But there's a, there's a there's change afoot in the spiritual realm. Precisely how this works, we don't know. We don't need to know. But we do know this. Jesus wins. God's kingdom comes. And eternal justice is done. And in the meantime, persistent prayers matter. In Exodus 17, the Israelite army were winning the battle when Moses held his hands up in prayer. But he got tired because it was taking time. And when the prayers stopped, the opposition started to win. And eventually he had to sit on a rock. Eventually others had to hold his hands up with him to join with him in prayer like we're going to do this Wednesday evening. Because it takes time for the spiritual battle to uh, conclude and for the earthly change therefore, to come. I'm going to leave it there. As I say, I trust that in Life Group you can get into some of the practical things about how to uh, keep going in prayer uh, as well as these more theoretical or theological things. But I just want to say again and emphasize, you will grow in your prayer life the more you understand who God is. So keep open to his revelation. Keep noting down the things he's talking to you about because it will expand your heart and your appreciation of who he is. We will grow in prayer as we understand our position in Christ and the pronouncement of innocence that is declared over us by his grace. We will grow in prayer as we gain a little bit of understanding to the purpose of waiting in God's eyes. I don't know whether I'll have 50,000 answered prayers by the time I end my life, like George Muller. But I, I haven't been recording them, to be fair. Maybe it's a good idea to do that. But I do pray, and I do hope, and it is a motivation that there'll be a day, an eternal day in glory, when I can look back through the annals of God's history books. I prayed for that. I prayed for that. And it happened. Maybe in my lifetime, maybe after my lifetime, maybe without me even knowing about it at the time. So let's keep praying and keep on praying. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Great, thanks.